Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's March 21st, which is theoretically the first full day of spring, but Washington, D.C. is completely shut down by a winter storm. So I'm talking with David Byler. Neither of us are actually in Washington, D.C., are we? Good morning, David, by the way. Good morning. Yeah, neither of us are. I'm currently visiting in-laws on the West Coast, and so not there at the moment. Now, you are the resident political number cruncher for the Weekly Standard, and I want to talk about the midterms. I want to talk about what happened in Illinois last night. Uh, uh, read the tea leaves. But I just, uh, you know, this is one of those days where, once again, the, 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 the news cycle is, 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 is kind of crazy. I mean, the president calls Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm congratulates him, which would no, be no big deal except for the report that the National Security Advisors gave him a sheet of paper with the, with the, with, with the words, do not congratulate all in caps. Right. We have the bomber in Austin, Texas, who apparently blew himself up. There are all of these lawsuits involving porn stars and models that, that the president of the United States is, is not able to escape. The story about Facebook, Facebook is in a world of hurt after all these stories about the personal data used by Cambridge Analytica, and I've, I've confessed that I'm obsessed with that whole story, uh, you have another school shooting yesterday. The school shooter is actually killed by a school resource officer who had a gun, so you, you know where that debate is going to go. Um, mm-hmm. HUD Secretary Ben Carson goes in front of Congress and blames his wife for the $31,000 furniture purchase. Then he also claims it was for safety purposes because otherwise people would be injured by the furniture. So I, I think we know what the worst day PR-wise, the, the Ben Carson story. He's going to ruin the whole phrase, but at least it's not rockets. I mean, uh, it's not brain surgery because I don't know. But yeah. uh, and, and Congress is still working on this massive omnibus spending plan that nobody's seen but has to pass by Friday to avoid a government shutdown. And, you know, if, if we actually had any brain you know, space left to be outraged about this, this whole legislative process where these major decisions are being made in private negotiating sessions, there's no public debate, nobody sees the bill, there are no hearings, and it has to be jammed through uh, in a matter of hours, probably in the middle of the night. I mean, that, that, would, that would make the Founding Fathers roll over in their graves, but eh. You know, David, that feels like so last decade to be worried about stuff like that. So what I wanted to do is let's start by talking about the primaries in Illinois. Um, really mm-hmm. not the most important elections of the year, but kind of revealing of a number of trends. So give me your take, the, sort of the, the, the top line lessons and messages we got from, from those primary results. Right. So I would sort of break this down into three parts. The first is the Republican gubernatorial primary, which uh, isn't usually something that is a big deal. When you have a sitting governor and Bruce Rauner, the Republican, was elected in 2014, they usually win their primary pretty easily. Not a big contest, not a big hoopla about it. But last night, he sort of barely skated by, only a narrow couple point win over uh, Ives, who is a challenger from the right. And basically what was happening... Pretty obscure guy, not well-known, right? I mean, a conservative challenger, unknown state representative, comes within three points of beating the incumbent Republican governor in a primary. Right, right. So she came really close to to beating him. And uh, there's sort of a couple reasons that you can trace back for this. One is Rauner's job performance. He is uh, one of the more unpopular governors in the country based on the opinion polling. 
basically for he had a two year long budget fight where there was no budget passed and there were consequent uh, economic problems uh, throughout the state. And so he was taking hits for that at, at the same time as he was taking hits uh, sort of from the right side of his party. Uh, for being pro-choice, for signing some legislation. He ran as having, quote, no social agenda, but then he signed some sort of more pro-choice legislation. So he was sort of getting squeezed from both sides. He was getting squeezed on one side sort of from a fiscal competence angle, if you will, and also on social issues where he had pulled left. So that kind of created a situation where he, as an incumbent governor, still had to fight off a primary challenge. And you can see some of those things in the contours of his results. He lost some ground compared to 2014 in sort of the suburban Chicago collar counties. He had some issues in the more evangelical parts of the state. He still managed to get through it, but that was a big show of weakness. And I would personally call Ronner uh, probably the most vulnerable Republican governor running for reelection in the country. Um, he's in a Democratic state. He doesn't have the high approval rating of somebody like a Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who is a Republican in a blue state, but is kind of beloved for his wonkish competence. Um, and so he's just in sort of a, a bad position. Uh, and he is up against a Democrat named J.B. Pritzker, who is a very wealthy businessman, but kind of has some baggage of his own. That sort of now this is the Broner's part. I, this is one of the things yeah. I really like about this. In in the era of the the forgotten little man and, and populism, you have a, a millionaire running against a gazillionaire. Uh, Rauner is you know, got elected by pumping a lot of his own money, and he's very very wealthy. And he's going to do it again. And then of course you have Pritzker, who what has dumped something like seventy million dollars, um, and which got him through the primary despite the personal baggage. So we really are in the era of uh, of dueling millionaire billionaires, aren't we? Right, right. Um, I think a lot of people have been making a projection, and I think it's a safe one to say that uh, this is going to be the most expensive gubernatorial race in the history of the state of Illinois. So um, Ronner's saving grace might be that Pritzker has some liabilities as a candidate. Uh, he's had uh, some tapes where he was talking to Rod Blagojevich, the uh, former governor of Illinois, about the center replacement and uh, he was talking about some black politicians on those tapes, and he uh, you can listen to him too for yourself, but he did not go well, so he has liabilities in that direction. He has liabilities as being sort of this uh, wealthy businessman in a more populist moment generally. So if I had to pick one significant advantage for Ronner, other than simply the fact of being an incumbent, it would be that he didn't draw necessarily the strongest democratic challenger, but I would still say that the race uh, at least tilts towards the Democrats at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading the take, uh, James Holman, from uh, The Daily 202, that the primary results show angry bases in both parties are demanding more purity. And uh, the Democrats really have, of course, this, this question. Uh, they, they, they've actually figured out how to win elections in Trump country with the folks like Connor Lamb. But Connor Lamb didn't win a primary. And that's the big question that I have in the back of my mind. Could a centrist, uh, center-left leaning candidate, the kind of candidate who is going to, you know, win in this off-year election, uh, can they actually um, win primaries that tend to be dominated by the liberal base? And we had a test here in Illinois where you had one of the few remaining Democratic moderates, Dan Lipinski, who was running against uh, a challenger from the left, and he won, but, but again, only barely. 
Right. So this is an interesting case. He's because... pro-life, right? I mean, he was. That's yes. what, that's what that's what ticked off the uh, the uh, the Democratic left. Yeah, he's pro-life. That's sort of the most conspicuous of a couple different sort of conservative positions that he takes. He's definitely still a Democrat when you sort of sum up his positions on the whole. But he is to the left of the party more generally. And a lot of people sort of on the progressive left were saying, look, this district is not one that's, you know, in rural Trump country. It's one that we think we're going to win um, pretty handily in November. Why not nominate a more progressive candidate instead of someone like Lipinski? And Lipinski sort of uh, barely eked it out. He had a party support. And this is one of the dynamics that I think is interesting is that you're seeing on the Democratic side some of the sort of establishment figures that have kind of been losing power still have enough oomph to get somebody over the finish line and still can kind of get their man in a lot of these situations. And I think that's one thing that's helpful for them. And it's, you know, part of what helped Lipinski keep his seat. So it's a it's an interesting test case. And again, this is this is one where usually House incumbents don't have to think too hard about their reelection bid, but because of Democrats sort of trying to think about, you know, what does purity mean on our side? What should we accept? What should we not accept in terms of people who deviate from sort of the party line view? Uh, it's it's kind of an interesting case. Yeah, it is because you know, as <laughs> it's not rocket science that there aren't many blue dog Democrats any, anymore. You know, outside of places like West Virginia. Um, you don't really mm-hmm. have a lot of these these blue dogs. Uh, you know, Doug Jones won down in December by you know um, you know again promising to protect Obamacare. He came out against the twenty week abortion ban. So there just aren't that many pro life Democrats left. Uh, also, you know, I want to go back to again. I'm reading from this this two hundred two report, but the the Pew Research study which came out. I know that you read this yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. highlighting the way in which the Democratic Party has really moved to the left. Uh, you know, the number of Democrats who say that their political views are liberal has uh, has really spiked since 2000. Uh, about half of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters, uh, 46%, say they're liberal. Uh, a decade ago, more Democrats said they were moderates. So you really have this demographic and ideological shift in the Democratic Party, which uh, you know, I, I, again, create some opportunities and some problems. But, you know, the question is, are they still a blue-collar party? I would say no, but dominated by uh, women, minorities, liberals, uh, various other uh, urban elites that really make the Democratic Party look fundamentally different and the Democratic primary electorate look a lot different than even a decade ago. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing, and, you know, we're... Uh, on audio, so I can't show you the graphic, but I uh, recently put together a graphic that looks back through a couple decades of election results broken down by demographics. And what I pulled out of it was the total margin, in, or sorry, excuse me, the margin in, on presidential, presidential contests for white voters without a college education. And exit polls, you know, they have their problems, but they showed Bill Clinton actually winning in 1992 and 1996 with this group. But then when you adjust it for the popular vote, you just see a steady Republican rise. In 2000, Bush did better with those voters than Dole did. And then in 2004 and 2008, 2012, 2016, you just keep getting an upward trend in how well Republicans 
are just in general doing with white working class voters. You can see this in the maps as well. You can see uh, Appalachia going from blue to red. You can see this in uh, Trump's election results in some of these rural areas and sort of the northern tier of the United States uh, going from blue to red. Uh, you see big changes. And I think that's part of what's happening on in the, ideo in the ideological side of things is you have uh, Democrats party or the Democratic Party fundamentally changing and the Republican Party sort of accepting a lot of former Democrats and that driving a lot of the difference. Now, Democrats have been able to stay competitive and replace those losses with uh, gains from sort of the growing demographic groups like Hispanics and uh, with better margins, with college-educated white voters. But that's that's part of this divide we're seeing is that the parties, who makes up the parties, is really changing, and it's a long-term change. It's taken... So what, what, is, it, what is driving yeah. this? Is it is it primarily, is it economic anxiety? Or is it social issues? Or are there, are there certain... Um, I mean, obviously, this, this is one of the big stories over the last several decades, and, you know, people are going back and forth. You saw what Hillary said in India, talking about, you know, the, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know a lot of her opponents were people who just didn't like women's rights and didn't want uh, minority rights. You get some sense of, of what is the, the heart of this, the beating heart of this shift? Right. So this is an interesting question, and I'm sort of a multiple-cause person. I think it's hard to trace it back to exactly one thing, one conceptual illustration that uh, my former colleague Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics used that I think is really helpful is just to think of Democratic presidential nominees since Bill Clinton on kind of a cultural left to right scale. Um, you would see Bill Clinton is able to project sort of a, you know, reasonably culturally conservative issue, or excuse me, uh, image on you know various things and then you see al gore who's less able to do that then you see john Kerry, who is a senator from massachusetts and he's kind of less able to do that and then you see uh barack obama who you know is this uh academic from harvard and he sort of has uh, embodies a version of the democratic party that's culturally to the left of what bill clinton was and then you see hillary clinton and you kind of see this progression of democrats kind of moving left culturally, while Republicans uh, nominate George W. Bush, and then John McCain and Mitt Romney less so, but then Donald Trump also makes cultural, conservative, cultural conservatism one of the big parts of his platform. So I think there's a cultural element to it. Um, there are ugly elements to it that I think that you can't leave out of the story. You can't ignore some of Donald Trump's rhetoric on things like immigration or race. I think that's part of what's going on here. But as the party has moved, I think that's part of it. I think policy is another part of it. Um, Democrats have moved left on policy. Republicans have moved right on policy. Voters notice these things and they kind of sort accordingly. And you sort of put that and a couple other factors all into one thing and you sort of shake it up and you get the party divisions that we have presently. Okay. Then we're going to take a, a, a short break here, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to take this 35,000-foot um, look at the at the midterm elections because you've had some really eye-opening charts that you've published uh, in, in, in the standard. Um, 
The the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by Tripping.com. Now, I really love to, to travel, in fact, uh, looking ahead for this, this summer. I think a lot of people are looking for, can I get out of town? Can I get away? You don't have to visit a ton of different websites. On Tripping.com, one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. Vacation rentals offer more more privacy, more space for everybody under one roof, more choices with fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, even hot tubs, all the comforts of home, and then some. The best thing about this at Tripping.com is you can join millions of travelers who find more savings with rates up to 80%. That's 80% less than a traditional hotel room. So if you're planning spring break on the beach in Florida, Tripping.com. You can't wait to swim in Lake Tahoe this summer, Tripping.com. You want to go sit on the deck of a Smoky Mountain cabin, Tripping.com. You can save time and money when you book your vacation home with Tripping.com slash standard. That's Tripping.com, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G.com slash standard. Find your perfect vacation rental, Tripping.com slash standard. Okay, David, obviously uh, there is a speculation everybody's playing this game. Uh, and it's only it is only March, but it is it is March of a midterm election year. Is it safe to say that we've seen some pretty dramatic trends? I notice that that uh, the turnout in the Illinois primary, not to read too much into that, the turnout among Democrats seemed um, much higher than the turnout among Republicans. I think uh, I saw one one account that said uh, that twice as many Democrats turned out. As uh, as Republicans turned out yesterday in Illinois, that seems to be following a worrying pattern. At least if you're a Republican, right? So what we're seeing in a lot of the quantitative public opinion indicators, a lot of the election results, all the sort of stuff you use to gauge what's going to happen in the midterms, we're seeing them all point in a similar direction, and that direction is leftward. Um, you are seeing in a lot of special elections disproportionate democratic turnout. You're seeing a lot of enthusiasm. You're also seeing some evidence of crossover voting of people who might ordinarily vote for Republicans being oftentimes unhappy with the president and then voting for the Democratic candidate in a special election. You see Trump's approval rating as pretty low. He's at around 41 percent. That's really low for a president at this point in his first term. You see Democrats with a roughly eight-point lead in generic ballot polls, which essentially ask a national sample of voters, uh, who do you want to vote for, which party in the upcoming midterm elections, and then they answer. And so you have a lot of different indicators sort of pointing in the same direction. And when that happens, sometimes the underlying cause is sort of the same thing. And in my view, that thing is mostly the unpopularity of the president. A lot of people don't like his personality, and a lot of people don't like his policy. He's alienated a chunk of the people who voted for him in the 2016 election. And so this kind of follows a general pattern. Oftentimes, presidents overextend themselves and in their first year or two and end up doing pretty poorly in the subsequent midterms. We saw it in 2010, 2014, 2006. Uh, 2002 was a little bit of a different situation because of the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. But you kind of see my point. This is a broader historical pattern, and Trump is 
sitting it of potentially having some big losses in the midterm. You know, really for the uh, for the I won't say for the, for the first time, but I really got the sense uh, that uh, the, the Pennsylvania special election change shifted the mood. Here in Wisconsin, um, I, I noticed that Republicans suddenly are looking around and realizing that uh, that this wave could could affect them all up and down the ballot because um, in an off-year election, they kind of count on the electorate being a certain profile um, that Republicans tend to turn out in bigger numbers than Democrats. You shift that even mildly, and then suddenly you have the possibility of people that you know just happen to have an R after their name um, being surprised by this kind of a, of a wave. And uh, the, the anxiety that I'm hearing over and over and over again is that, okay, we're going to be okay in the rural areas, but um, there's a, just a notable shift in the suburbs, and particularly among suburban women voters. And, I, you know, I, I think right now Republicans are struggling. How, how do you survive in this particular? You can't run without the Trump voters, and yet the, if you're associated with Trump, there's a possibility you're going to be annihilated. Right. So this is a really important factor when we're thinking about midterms. And oftentimes what we've seen in previous midterm elections is college educated voters uh, turning out better than some other groups. And what we saw in the 2016 election was Hillary Clinton gaining a lot of ground with college educated white voters, Donald Trump losing a lot of ground with college educated white voters who are typically a you know reasonably Republican group. He just lost a lot of them. And I think you can look at his campaign style and watch his speeches and just kind of figure out why that wouldn't be a good fit culturally. Um, so in the midterms, if you have a high turning out group that is sort of turning against you, that's a big problem for your party. And that's a big problem for the Republicans. And, you know, the turnout might be all right in some of these rural areas. But uh, for what it's worth, I did do an analysis of a lot of the major elections in 2017, Virginia, Alabama, some of the House specials. And it suggested that some of the voters that people think of as sort of Trumpy, white voters, maybe in rural areas, oftentimes who don't have a college degree, uh, that they hadn't been turning out for Republicans at the rate that one might expect. And, you know, there are uh, different factors in every races in every race that you can chalk that up to. There are local factors that matter, so on and so forth. But it sort of started to build a pattern, and you can see a situation in which the 2018 midterms do not have the sort of favorable turnout that 2014 or 2010 did for the Republicans, and that affecting a wide range of districts. So I would say that the Republican House majority is in serious danger at this point. I would say that it leans uh, Democratic if I had to just like give a rating how, how many to seats, how the many, whole race for control. How many seats do the Democrats need to pick up again? Yeah. Um, I, had that, I had that in front of me just the other day, but I, I, I'm, I'm seeing yeah. predictions of over 30 to 40 seats is sort of the median prediction. That would do and it. That would definitely do it. So because I know you have to go, but I, I'm, I'm a nerd on this as as well. You know, earlier this year, I was starting to think that maybe it would, wasn't going to be the wave that people thought because the tax cuts were kicking in. People were liking them. The, uh, the support was ticking up in the polls. The media coverage mm. was generally positive. Every day you'd pick up a newspaper and hear another company uh, handing out bonuses or expanding. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, look, you have uh, the tax cut. If, if you're Paul Ryan, your, your members are running on the tax cut. You're running on the strong economy. The stock market is relatively healthy. Unemployment is is down. And yet now you get the feeling, though, that 
and in part, this goes back to the president flipping the script. Now we're reading about you know the possibility of a trade war. We're reading about the impact of the the, the tariffs, and of course, every day it's another one of the Trump dramas. So at the very moment when Republicans, you know, were thinking, okay, we we at least now know what we're going to run on, that seems to have been shoved aside. And I noted that in Pennsylvania. The even the, the which happens to be steel country, even the steel tariffs didn't seem to move the needle that much. Do you get the sense that that mm. the Democratic, uh, I mean, that the Republican na- narrative um, has has in fact receded a little bit? At least the one thing, and that's basically the, all they got. Right, is to is to run on, and it's not bad, but to run on tax cuts and the economy. And yet, there's so much noise that that it drowns that out. Right, and I think. Uh, the noise is sort of part of the problem for Republicans. If you look at Trump's job approval numbers, and kind of the reason I keep coming back to Trump's job approval numbers is because I think midterms really are sort of referendums on the party in power. Uh, the Democrats don't necessarily need a coherent message other than I'm not Trump and he's unpopular. But if you look at Trump's approval ratings on the economy and you compare them to his overall approval ratings or his approval ratings in various other areas of policy, you'll see that the economy is sort of helping him and probably holding his numbers up from where it otherwise might be. But there's a lot of other stuff where Americans just generally don't like the president. And I think that noise is really part of it. All the stuff that you're talking about is really part of it. I would say that there is still a chance for Republicans to hold the House, but that's mostly dependent on the map, not necessarily on uh, great strategy. Republicans have a very favorable map, and there are long academic debates about exactly why that is, how much of it's gerrymandering, how much of it is sort of naturally Democrats being packed into cities. But um, Republicans can understand or can withstand a popular vote loss in the House popular vote of at least a few, maybe several points. So they can withstand a pretty Democratic environment and could still hold the thing. That's kind of why I'm not ready to say that it's a definite Democratic wave or it's likely Democratic or something along those lines. But yeah, I think that if you're, that's the right frame of it, that Republicans have a big map advantage, but that this is overall a referendum. And a lot of the other stuff that you're talking about that's not the economy is the stuff that people are upset about and that people do want to send a message about. And I think that's why Democrats are going to win the House popular vote and why it's an open question of whether or not they're going to win it by enough to take over the yeah, lower sometime chamber. Yeah, uh, sometimes we'll have you back and uh, and also talk about how uh, the, the Senate map may be different. I, I, I think it's certainly very possible that yes. the um, Republicans will lose the House but retain the Senate, which, of course, uh, will lead to an awfully interesting political dynamic. Yeah. David Byler, thanks so much for joining me, and thank you for uh, listening to the Daily Standard podcast. We will be back and do this all over again tomorrow. I'm Charlie Sykes.